Welcome to Freedom Fighters Code Grey. This is a show where we discuss human trafficking, an issue that's happening in our backyard. The main form of trafficking here in Canada is sex trafficking and sexual exploitation. So you might be wondering, what drives the demand for sex trafficking in Canada? Who are the purchasers of sex? Well, today I have with me a special guest, Hennes Dolce, and he's here to share his expertise on this topic. Welcome, Hennes. Thank you, Michaela. It's nice to be here and uh, thank you for having me on your show. How did you hear about human trafficking, Hennes? What was the first time that you heard about it and how did you come to be involved in this work? So the first time I heard about it uh, was actually in 2004 when I was a student um, doing my field placement for a social work degree. Um, and I was here in Winnipeg uh, working with the Salvation Army uh, and really being exposed to the issue of prostitution, of the demand side, the reasons why women uh, get engaged and then how they're forced into it sometimes. Uh, but it wasn't until 2012 that I actually um, was the, became the program manager um, and ran the prostitution offender program uh, here in Winnipeg for the last seven years. So what is the Prostitution Offender Program? So at the core, the program um, is uh, to engage with men uh, in the issue of, uh, of prostitution and buying sex. Uh, so we work together with a number of government partners, mainly the, the Crown Attorneys and the police, um, also a number of community agencies to address uh, sex trafficking and prostitution from the demand side. So after somebody's been arrested um, by the police, uh, they would be referred to our program. I would meet with them, and then we enter into this um, uh, work with them uh, to address issues of uh, why men buy sex, uh, educating them on the uh, the impact that uh, prostitution has uh, on the community, on the women that are involved, um, but also on themselves. So it's a mix between education, accountability, um, busting some myths around, uh, you know, why men buy sex and that it's, you know, something that uh, doesn't harm anybody um, and, and really trying to uh, to bring about a change of heart uh, amongst the men and uh, uh, teach them and, and help them to recognize that what they're engaging in um, is actually harming a, a lot of other people. One of the things that you mentioned as part of the program is to educate people about the myths of purchasing sex. So when we look at our society, what do you think some of the misconceptions are that people have about the purchase of sex? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think first of all, um, it's in 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 some ways our culture is very much um, sort of accustomed to to having prostitution uh, in 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 a lot of ways, and it's become normalized. Um, and uh, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about why women uh, are are engaged, and it's primarily women uh, who who are on the selling side, um, and uh, you know that they want to be there, that it's their choice, that they like doing this kinds of things. So a lot of things that are they're simply not true when you look at the bulk of the women. Um, and then on the other side, uh, for men uh, to understand, you know, that uh, this is not some some uh, victimless crime that nobody's getting hurt or that doesn't have any impact on it. So um, I think a lot of people, you know, think that the main reason that men buy sex is because, you know, they're lonely, they, they can't, you know, establish a relationship with somebody um, like, like most of uh, us people do. Um, and so they, you know, they choose to, to purchase sex, right? Um, but in reality, um, in, in our program, about half of the men that are in the program are actually in a relationship. So whether they're married or in a, in a common law relationship, so um, that uh, that argument that, oh, you know, these guys can't, can't get a partner uh, is simply not true. Um, and also, I think some of the myths are around 
that you know that nobody's impacted um, and this is really what we're trying to highlight in the program is to say well you know this isn't just between two adults um, but there's there's many more um, levels of, of impact on a community. It's almost like you, you use a, you, you have a little pebble and you throw it on a, on a lake that is crystal clear and still it, it has these ripple effects. Right. Um, and that's what we're really trying to, uh, engage with, uh, with the guys and, and, and peel away the layers of, of, uh, demand of prostitution and eventually, um, what fuels sex trafficking and human trafficking, because there's, there's, uh, a market for it and the market is made up of the demand of men who choose and who are willing to buy sex can you speak to that a little bit more in the sense of i feel like talking about the demand for the purchase of sex is sometimes removed from conversations regarding human trafficking and so why do you think that we need to address demand why do we need to talk about demand as it relates to specifically fighting sex trafficking mm -hmm. Well, when you when you break it down really to the to the bare bones, um, it's it's an industry uh, that preys on vulnerable people, which is one side, um, people that are being trafficked. Um, you have the sex traffickers um, or or people that commit human trafficking. But then you have the, the third element, and that is really the demand, right? Um, so if there wasn't the demand, if there wasn't a market uh, where where man would be willing to pay for sex to go online to you know choose you know the woman that they that they want to buy sex from uh, if that wasn't happening um this business would be maybe not existent but it would be uh much reduced right um and so but because there is a market uh that encourages the traffickers to to uh, uh you know, uh, lure in women and girls um, and to exploit them because they know that they can make money off of them. And unless we, we start taking that side into consideration um, and focus on the men as well, um, I, I think all of our efforts will, will fall short because if we only focus on victims, which is absolutely necessary and important, um, but um, we're just recreating a cycle and, and more younger and younger uh, women and girls are being exploited. Uh, and unless we start looking and focusing on, well, who, who are the men that buy them and why do they buy them and how many are there? Um, I think we're missing a major important part uh, uh, of, of the, uh, of this industry. Right. And uh, so in, in, you know, economic terms, although I, I hate to use those terms, but it's like, if you, if you eliminate the demand, you you create uh, a much different uh, environment uh, that is less likely to uh, to produce a lot of victims. While you're just sharing so much information that I'm still even processing, one of the things that you said that really stuck out to me is breaking the cycle, breaking the cycle of violence, breaking the cycle of abuse and of trafficking. And so I'm curious to know from your experience running and leading the prostitution offender program from your perspective how do you think that program does that why why does this program exist and also i would ask in regards to some of the questions you were just asking there who who does the program help typically mm -hmm. um so I, i'll start maybe with your second part of your question um so who does the program help so we um um have about uh, 100 uh, 
people in the program every year. Um, it fluctuates. It, it, it has gone down since COVID started just because it makes it uh, harder for police to enforce the laws. Um, but prior to COVID, uh, we would have about 100 people in the program, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes less. Um, and, um, you know, Quite frankly, they were they were men from all walks of life, from all backgrounds. We had people that were barely eighteen. We had people that were in their seventies uh, or or even older, um, and from all ethnic backgrounds. From uh, you know, from people that are that are professionally well established. Um, you know, all income levels. Um, in fact, it was actually people with, with more disposable income uh, that, that were in the program uh, rather than people who, who live in poverty. Um, and so, you know, the common denominator, and I get this asked often, you know, what, what, is, what does this specifically look like a man that purchased sex? And the common denominator is, is basically that they're a man, you know, whether they're from um, you know, and, and recently uh, arrived immigrant or somebody who's lived in Canada all of their life. Um, it, it really seems to be the the gender aspect, um, and there are certainly women uh, who who have been you know uh, arrested, but uh, the overwhelming majority is really men. You know, and you see this also um, in 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 other areas where where men are primarily the, the users of whether it's pornography or other things. Um, so that is the uh, um, I, I think there's. Um, yeah, such a wide uh, field of, of people that, that fall into the program. And, and what we are really trying to do is to, uh, to find a balance between education uh, and accountability. So accountability on one hand to say, okay, um, with your behavior of purchasing sex, um, you're contributing to the cycle of prostitution, of exploitation, of trafficking, um, and uh, but also education to say, okay, w what is even the legal situation in Canada? Uh, a lot of people are are confused. They don't know the law. They don't know that it is illegal to purchase sex, but but not illegal to to sell it. Um, and so we we want to highlight, you know, what is the the legal framework in Canada? Um, what are potential consequences if somebody has to go to court and is convicted on a charge? Um, but also, uh, you know, spreading. Um, sort of a wider focus to say uh, what other things are important here as well. So we bring in uh, people from the police. Um, we bring people in from uh, child protection. And even though nobody in the program has been arrested for trying to purchase for, from somebody under the age of 18, we know that a lot of women where adults started when they were uh, when they were under eighteen, um, and then we we focus on um, just uh, you know personal testimonies from women that were involved in the in the industry prior, and that is always such a powerful and impactful story for the men to hear because it is. Uh, for once bringing uh, a story, bringing a personal um, testimony to them that, that they didn't see or that they chose not to see prior, right? They always saw her as, you know, the, the sort of the object, uh, you know, for, of sexual gratification. Uh, and here they have to listen to her uh, when she shares, you know, how she ended up. And it's usually, you know, experiences of trauma, abuse, poverty, uh, all of those reasons that are uh, making somebody vulnerable. Um, and so we try to really take an approach that isn't confrontational and putting somebody in the hot seat, but we want somebody um, to, to open their minds and hearts. And we have found this much more helpful to engage with them in a 
uh, in a respectful conversation to say, okay, um, you know, these are these are the the realities, you know, um, and and really trying to appeal to to their humanity uh, to to make a change and to recognize, hey. You know, this could be my sister, uh, this could be my mom, this could be my daughter who's who's being exploited, right? And here I am uh, taking an active part in that. So, and, and it resonates with a lot of guys, not with everybody, of course, um, but it's generally something where we have felt um, uh, more deeper change is, is um is possible when when we take this approach rather than you know sort of the heavy-handed approach uh, and just saying you know this is illegal etc. Uh, we we haven't found that very helpful um, and that's why um, you know we we really want to engage in that conversation. We also bring somebody in uh, who is a counselor uh, who then focuses on okay what are you're uh, meaning the, the man's specific reason of why he buys sex, right? Um, and that's also something I think that we want to highlight is because, okay, uh, as much as we want to focus on accountability, well, we also want men to help succeed uh, if they choose not to be engaged in, uh, you know, in prostitution and sex buying anymore. I really appreciate how you're sharing and even articulating the way the program comes alongside and supports folks and really emphasizing that each individual's humanity and engaging them in a conversation in a respectful way, but in an effort to help shift mindsets and perspectives and also to facilitate healing. And in your words, as you just shared, promote success. So Hennes, this has been an enlightening conversation so far, and I really appreciate your you sharing your expertise with me and our viewers. And thanks so much to the viewers for tuning in. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be right back. Freedom Fighters Code Gray. This is a show where we discuss human trafficking and today we're tackling the demand side. Who are the purchasers of sex and why do we need to talk about demand when we are discussing the fight against human trafficking? And today with me we have Hennes Dulce and we're going to continue our conversation on this front. So Hennes, I was wondering if you could just break it down for our viewers or our listeners today. What are the laws regarding the purchase and sale of sex here in Canada right now? So I want to go back maybe a step. Um, like the laws were changed um, in 2000, and I think it was 14. Um, and prior to that, prostitution was seen sort of as a nuisance. So uh, as long as it didn't happen in the public eye, uh, it was uh, it was legal. Now that changed um, when when the law uh, was changed, and um, now any attempt to purchase sex anywhere. So this could be on the internet, on a website, um, in an email exchange. Uh, uh, a chat um, or in, in person, in a hotel, on the street, any attempt uh, to purchase sex is criminalized already. So, so that means that the conversation to engage somebody and say, okay, um, I'll give you $20 for a blowjob, that's already a criminal offense for the person who's attempting to purchase. Um, and that is also... Um, uh, important to know because it doesn't actually have to come sort of the to the actual act of, of purchasing sex, but already the conversation is illegal. Um, on the other side, uh, it is not illegal to 
to sell sex. And uh, so that's why um, women, primarily women who, who are or the sellers of sex were, were decriminalized because the government recognized that most of them, maybe not all, but most of them uh, do not do this because it's their choice or because they enjoy it so much, because there's some sort of uh, level of force or desperation or, or, or trafficking uh, happening. Um, and so this is what we call an asymmetrical law. So one is one side is cr uh, criminalized, which is the purchase, and the other side uh, is is not criminalized, which is the uh, the selling of sex. Some people also call it the Nordic model, because it was developed in Sweden, and then a number of Nordic countries uh, adopted it. Uh, recently, people started to call it the equality model because it, what it really aims to do is to to make people equal um, in in a sense of addressing prostitution uh, on the demand side um, and and raising the bar on the equality level uh, amongst women. Um, so rather than criminalizing them, um, states uh, have adopted a. Um, a method to to help them and not criminalize them, uh, and this is what what is yeah what's the situation here in Canada? It's really interesting that you mentioned that the laws that we have in place, PSEPA, or otherwise known as the Nordic model, or also the equality model, is really interesting because reflecting back on our earlier parts of the discussion and how you were highlighting how most purchasers are men most individuals who are impacted by the sex industry or sex trafficking are women and girls. And then if we add in the traffickers and who the traffickers are, we know the majority are men as well. So there is a gender inequality piece that needs to be addressed as we discuss this issue. So I think it's really interesting as well that our law is called the equality model to some folks. So Hennis, with this law and how it's in place, how does that impact people on the demand side? So say someone is having that conversation to purchase a sexual service and law enforcement overhears or yeah. So what, what does that process look like? And then how does someone end up being charged and then potentially in your program? Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, first of all, um, in order to, um, to put some teeth to the law, uh, local law enforcement will have to make the decision to enforce the laws. And, and that is a very interesting situation because it's very different across Canada. Like you have cities like Winnipeg uh, and Edmonton um, where the police services have decided to, uh, to enforce it. Uh, and you have other cities um, where, where this is not the case for a number of different reasons. Um, so for us in Winnipeg here, because we have a history of a very strong community focus um, and a lot of uh, indigenous agencies um, really advocating, not exclusively, but uh, also advocating to say, okay, we need to address um, prostitution in its entirety. Um, and so um, it, I, I think there's a much greater appetite for you know, the Winnipeg police to do that because um, it, it is something that the community is really interested in and keen in uh, to address because a lot of the, um, the, the women in prostitution here are actually indigenous uh, uh, background. Um, so most of the time we get a referral from the police when when they arrest somebody so they would um, uh, enforce on the street uh, or in a hotel um, and then if they come across somebody uh, who's communicated um, and and uh, they would uh, qualify then they would um, be able to to send them to us uh, so sometimes they call this uh, stings or sting operations um, and if somebody is eligible uh, we would work with them um, and then really engage 
engage in that um, discussion around that, right? There's also a fee, uh, which is um, uh, $800. So there's a, a financial aspect to it uh, where, where people have to be uh, paying into the program in order to participate as well. And so in that regard, is the program voluntary or is the program mandatory for those who are arrested for purchasing sex? Um, it is it is given as an option. Um, so at the time of the arrest, um, the police will, will give the information for our program to the, uh, to the person that was arrested. Um, and they can choose to participate or they can choose to uh, take the matter to trial or to court. Um, so um, it, it isn't fully mandatory, but it isn't voluntarily either. So it's somewhere in, in between. Um, but people have a choice to participate. If they do not, um, then they can take it to trial. Um, and then depending on the outcome, either face a, a conviction or be, you know, be acquitted. But most likely because it is a police operation, it'll lead to a conviction. So most people are, are uh, signing up um, you know, because they're asked by the police to, to do that, um, but, but, they're, but they're given the choice in some ways. And so what would be the benefits on a legal front for someone to decide to join the program instead of going the other alternative route? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's a good question. So we operate under uh, what we call a restorative justice model. Um, so if people participate in the program um, and they complete all of the program requirements, um, their charges would actually be stayed. So meaning they would not face a conviction and they would not face a criminal record in the end. Um, and we believe that, you know, it, it, it is a meaningful way of engaging with men, um, sort of, uh, and, and again, striking that balance between accountability, but also, um, you know, you, applying restorative justice, restorative justice principles to say, okay, we don't necessarily need to um, fill up courts and, and prison systems with people that commit these offenses. I, I think the courts are overloaded with a lot of other things as well. Um, and so uh, at the end, um, they would uh, have their charges state. Um, and if they never get involved again, um, you know, that charge would not come up uh, again in court for them. And if someone is struggling with pornography or sex addiction, and they haven't been arrested, and they haven't actually maybe even engaged in a conversation yet, so they haven't faced any charges, could they still reach out and join the program? Yeah, they, they could. Um, and, and often it is, um, you know, sex addiction and pornography that is sort of a driving force. It's not the only, sometimes it's, uh, it's a number of host problems, um, you know, loneliness, or, or sometimes it is a level of, um, of control that people want to have over somebody else. But if somebody's in that situation of, uh, you know, using pornography and addiction, um, they can definitely reach out to, uh, to the program. Um, and uh, we would focus on the, the issue of prostitution and the reasons, right? So I think there would always have to be a connection to um, to prostitution as well, uh, I think in order for the uh, for this to be meaningful, right? However, we're not a, a counseling um, uh, agency that, that offers long-term counseling to uh, to people in in those situations. Well, we know that the majority of Canadians are engaging or watching pornography at some level, and even recent stats say that most Canadians think that it's morally okay to do. And so you mentioned that pornography is a driving force behind demand. And so I was just wondering if you could kind of tease out for our viewers, the link between watching pornography and then the purchase of sex and then sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think there's a number of layers to this. Um, and, and the first one is somebody said um, that pornography is actually nothing else other than film prostitution, right? So somebody gets paid to have sex, right? Um, and, and this is being filmed. So I think this is the first element. But the other one is also to it... Um, I think what it drives is it, it changes people's um, view on sexuality, you know, what healthy sexuality is. Um, and I think it introduces a lot of things um, that, um, you know, people all of a sudden feel like, oh, I, I would like to try something I saw on pornography, but I'm, you know, I, I don't want to ask my wife or my partner for this. So I'm going to go you know, and pay somebody, pay a, pay a woman in prostitution, uh, you know, to do, do, to do this with me, right? So I think this is a, the driving um, factor as well. Um, and then just the sheer availability um, of pornography uh, is, is also, I think, something that, um, you know, that impacts younger people. Um, and, and uh, you know, I think sometimes just seeing something on a screen is not enough. So people want to live it out, um, which, again, uh, fuels prostitution, um, on that level as well so we spent a lot of time today discussing kind of the problem and then how the program might assist someone who is struggling with the purchase of sex and so i'm just wondering do you have a story of transformation or hope of someone who came into the program they're really struggling with purchasing sex they had been arrested for it and yeah if you could just share that story with us that outcome Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, we have a, a gentleman in our program um, who's come, um, like who participated in the program, and then he came back for a number of years to actually share his story. And, and really, um, what it did for him is um, it, it was um, opening up a, uh, an avenue for his own healing, for his own underlying issues that he felt he had. And, and sex was always just a, sort of an easy fix, but it never actually solved his issues. So he went through counseling. He came and spoke and shared his story, his, basically his, his own struggle. He lost his job in, in, the, you know, in the process of this um, and, and is doing quite well now. You know? and, and so there's a, a number of stories uh, that I could tell you, but um, you know, I think it's really encouraging encouraging to see where men grow um, and, and change their trajectory and the trajectory of their family and their, uh, you know, uh, their, their community and their neighborhood as well. Really quickly, what would you say to someone who is considering to purchase sex or who is struggling with the purchase of sex? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, you, you know, um, ad address the issue. Uh, if, if you feel an inkling in yourself, you know, that this is an issue that you can't handle by yourself anymore, reach out to somebody, you know, do some research online. When it comes to pornography, uh, there's a number of, a number of uh, resources out there, fight the new drug, um, uh, sex addicts anonymous, those kinds of things. Um, don't let it fester in the dark, uh, reach out for help, basically. Well, thank you so much, Hennes, for sharing your expertise on this topic, but also for all the hard work that you've done over the years to come alongside men and just journeying with them and having conversations with them to engage in meaningful change in their life. I really appreciate and value your contributions today. And so folks, if you are tuning in today and you are someone that's struggling with sex addiction or struggling with pornography, we want to highlight a resource that could be available to you, Sex Addiction Anonymous. You can call at 1-800-477-8191. That's 1-800-877-8191. There's an, also an app called Fortify that you can download that will help you with compulsive porn use. Or as Hannah's mentioned, you can visit fightthenewdrug.org for a plethora of resources. Thank you so much for tuning in to Freedom Fighters Code Great. We hope to catch you next time.